In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even narrowing watch? down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where I'm going to be interviewing a good friend of mine, Rusty Gilligan, who's been a child actor, an artist, a writer, and a wrestler, and to me, one of the most important things he does, a lot of he raises a lot of money to help pets out in in humane, you know, in um, shelters and that kind of stuff. How you doing today, Rusty? All right, my friend Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good today. I'm doing pretty good. I mean, it's um, you know, near the end of August while we're recording this and um, of 2021, and uh, I can't complain too much about myself. I'm doing about pretty well. How about yourself? I can complain. I can, I can, (laughs) I'm I'm doing okay. I have a couple of health problems and, uh, uh, I'm trying to work through them, but right now I'm, I'm doing jobs. The the past, I would say three months has been the heaviest it's been, um, all year. Um, but since the, the virus and the quarantines and the lockdowns and all of that, I've actually done maybe five times more work than I've ever done in my whole career. So a very unusual setting, but um, we hear on the news all the time, people are at home, they're not doing anything on and on and on. There's a lot of, you know, home footage and everybody's got their iPhone out making little movies at home and TikTok and whatever. But actually it, it, the grind kept going. Um, uh, so I've been doing, uh, between the acting and the voice acting and, um, my studio has been publishing at least three things since the, the whole thing started. Um, I actually haven't left the studio in, in, uh, almost a year and a half. So that's the one thing I think with voice actors during this time of the pandemic is regardless, because if you can work, if you have a studio and can work at home. You, you, you have a way to keep producing work and also being an artist that does a lot of stuff. You, you, again, you work at home, so you still can keep producing your work. So I think it worked out right. well for you. I'm a, I'm an essential employee. So I still went to my normal job and that kind of stuff. But I mean, I, I do know there's people that had to, um, weren't as lucky as you and I. Yeah, I, I've had a, uh, I've worked at home. I can't say home studio, but I have worked at home for years um, our two oldest boys are 28, the twins. So I've worked at home for almost 30 years. And um, the studio part came in about 17, 18 years ago. And uh, I enjoy it. I mean, you can see some of the mess behind me because, uh, uh, you know, I can, I can draw, I can boil, I don't know how to clean. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
the mess the mess behind me is not only hard earned, but I know every dust bunny and every ant by heart. Um, uh, or I should say first name basis. But uh, yeah, working at, working at home has become very satisfying for me for a lot of you know for a lot of these jobs. Um, the good thing is is I can set my own hours, set my own pace. Um, you know, email posting to things like Dropbox and Google Drive and whatever for the clients is great. So I can do stuff. I can record lines at two in the morning where I would have to go to the studio at six or five, you know, or, or four in the afternoon. Uh, I can do artwork at 3 a.m., 3 p.m., 10 o'clock at night, break for dinner, eat while I'm doing it, if that's the case, where years ago I would have to go in nine to five in a, in a studio uh, or, or editorial room. Uh, like a newspaper or a comic book place, you know, and, and do work. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoy, I actually enjoy the home as well because uh, all my tools are available. I don't have to share them with anybody. I have my own processes that I do um, and I keep my own calendar, you know, my own schedule. So that makes it easier as well. And I think the other key thing, you're not giving credit to yourself, is just because you work at home, you still have that feel to meet those deadlines and to keep yourself working in that grind. Right. Cause I think sometimes people get working at home and then they get distracted from being at home and then the deadlines start to loom and then that panic comes in. But I guess, you know, 30 years, you got that down to us for you to a science. Well, you would think so, but right now I'm late. I'm, I'm almost late on one deadline and I'm working my butt off on another deadline. And then someone contacted me and said, one of the things that we're doing is now delayed by a week, but you have to do more. So um, we used to be a nation of home workers. I know that that sounds funny, but um, every mom that took care of kids made dinners and whatever was a home worker. Every nurse in a hospital or every doctor in a hospital, every lawyer, every cop that took their work home with them uh, and, and was forced to do something outside of their job was a home worker. Every soldier, every business owner was a home worker. Um, you know, we're not all the factory workers like that, like we used to be. Uh, you know, we're not all, you know, uh, uh, working for uh, the giant corporations, the giant insurance companies, the big television concerns, et cetera. We've actually always been a nation that supported home workers, personal business, um, uh, you know, owning, you know, business, personal business ownership. So working for bigger companies as a subcontractor at home and, and being able to be farmed out uh, is something, like I said, I've been doing this now for maybe, well, I'd say about 40 years. My mother was a telephone operator for NBC studios when we moved to California. So she became head of the department for uh, after a while. She would work with subcontractors all the time. People who literally work from home in the late seventies, early eighties, this guy came in to repair phones. This guy uh, worked on the cables and this other guy helped set up phones in other offices. Uh, this other guy would lay carpet 
in the uh, in the the phone room on and on and on. So um, you know, I'm just following along, I guess, with that tradition. I've worked in editorial rooms. I've worked on the set of movies and gone to studios to record in their facility. But um, right now, it's not really uh, it's not really as important as it used to be. Now everybody's got the ability of just going on Amazon, buying a great microphone and a pair of, you know, headphones and download audacity or whatever, and just start recording. And pretty soon you've got a podcast, you're doing lines at home for cartoons or, you know, you're drawing on whatever paper there is. Doesn't matter because you scan it in. It's a blank white screen, you know, you could just as easily draw on toilet paper with a crayon and make it look beautiful in Photoshop and still get the thousand dollar job, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm lucky to have been one of those people that has done this for a long time. I started doing it around the time that it became uh, uh, like a, like a, a new thing. Like it was like, Oh, you work from home. Oh, what do you do? You know, uh, to where now it's like, where do you work? Oh, I work at home. Oh, okay. You know, like as if it doesn't matter, you know, rolls off the tongue, hits the floor, rolls out the door, big deal. So. Yep, you're, you're ahead of the time and now you are current <laughs> in that aspect. Yes. yes. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, how you got started in the acting industry? Because, you know, you, you, you were a child actor in a lot of different right. productions. What got you started? What was, was it, you know, from your, you wanted to do it? Was it your mom? Um, it, it's, it's kind of funny. It was a weird start. Um, we, okay. It, my mother and grandmother raised me. I didn't have a dad. So there are obviously when you're a single parent, it's, it's a little different. You try to look for that second parent role. You know, I didn't have the dad to go out and play catch with. So I would do, uh, arts and craft classes half hour, 40 minutes at like the local PS, you know, public school. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to the movies uh, or, or, or going camping. So it was like, you know, grandma would take you to the museum and mom would have a break or go do work or sip wine, whatever the deal was. So I, I did, uh, like I said, you know, the local PS, so I would do uh arts and craft classes and clay and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just general playtime. And one of the classes was acting. And um, she was like, are you sure you want to do this? And sure, whatever, you know, at, at that age, you know, you're like, you know, sure, I'll walk through fire, whatever, you know, that sounds fun, you know. Uh, and then you burn your feet and you're like, why did you let me do that? You're a terrible mom. So I went ahead and I, I went ahead and I did that for a short time. Very much enjoyed it because it got to be free. Um, kids acting classes. I'm, I'm going to say from my personal experience and at the time, because I can imagine someone's listening to this and saying that's just bull. Um, but the thing is, is that uh, kids acting classes at the time was more like two kids get up on stage. You act like a cow. You act like a chicken. Okay, go. Or um, I want you two to argue over a flavor of ice cream. Go. And, and they would just be silly. But it was a way to get out a little bit of aggression, be talented, be funny. Kids would develop. 
and then there would be a diamond in the rough. So I'm doing my acting and uh, this lady saw the class. She sat in and I got hired for a part in a Broadway play called The Family Affair. And I wound up doing that for a short time. And then we moved from uh, New York to California. During that time, we did it at a couple of other places. Um, we performed summer stock in New Jersey, and we did a, a festival, uh, like a play festival in, uh, I think it was in Arizona. Might have been New Mexico. It's been, it's been obviously, it's been a long time. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about you getting into details. I mean, it's it, it's been just yeah. a few years. <laughs> Yeah, I would say about 49 few years. And then uh, when we got to California, we, we stayed and we, we did it for about 13 weeks at one place in, in Burbank, California. And we stayed and they cast a part to uh, another kid when they moved on because, you know, they just kept traveling. So I stayed. And then during that time, somebody saw the play and I got cast in a commercial and then you know, one domino after another. And then, you know, that was it. Um, I've gotten a lot of good parts. I did a lot of jobs. If you look up on IMDb, there's about maybe, oh, I'd say maybe 20 or 30 jobs that aren't even listed up there. I don't know who does the addition of stuff uh, up there, but there's a lot of stuff up there that I didn't, you know, get credited for. And then um, I also did over 200 commercials. Um, I, I did a bunch of plays. I was on the radio, so I, I really enjoy it. And then I wrestled later on, and I consider that to be part of acting too. So, um, you know, because it's television appearance, and you're playing a part. You're having, you know, you're 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 entertaining. But um, the the kids' acting was great. Like I really enjoyed it. I got butterflies every time. Uh, the size of pterodactyls in my stomach. I, I enjoyed it, you know. It was one of those things. And I was always glad it was over with so I could say, hey, I did that. And then I was apprehensive when the next job came up and I'm like, oh, crap, my line, I got to say it, boom. And then I'm like, oh, thank God it's over with. Yeah, I had a great time. I wasn't scared at all, you know. that, you know, The BS just flowed like water, but. It was a great time. I did a lot of stuff and I enjoyed it. Um, especially the early time in California when I was there, I very much enjoyed that. I was going to say, as a child actor, you were involved in a few specials with Bob Hope and, and those kind of things. Um, did you get to meet Mr. Hope and, 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 and who was like, did you get to meet any of the people that were on the special? Did you get to work with Oh, them? yeah. I, Bob was actually. Um, okay. Los Angeles and Burbank were like the left, they were bordered by like an invisible line and a city called Toluca Lake straddled. Uh, it was a circle and it would straddle, uh, part of Los Angeles, part of Burbank and part of North Hollywood as kind of like a community. So I lived in Toluca Lake and Bob lived like two blocks behind us and to the left. So I knew Bob and Dolores for a long time, uh, actually. I, I, I don't want to say that we were like major friends. I wasn't on any Christmas card list, <laughs> but we knew each other and we saw each other a lot, supermarket stuff. And 
Uh, I got asked to be on, I was actually on three of his specials, but they only list two up there. Um, <clears throat> I got to meet uh, John Wayne at one of his uh, specials, um, George Burns, a uh, lot of actors. And then I got a lot of work from uh, NBC as well. Um, I worked on the Midnight Special and I worked on a couple of soaps. Like I said, a lot of stuff that's not up there. Um, on IMDb. He, he was a great guy. He was very funny. A lot of people don't know that Bob Hope was actually originally born in England and he was an Englishman, but he was very Americanized. And uh, he had that sort of humor, which is what made him so popular. If he was a British actor with a British accent, but he was Bob Hope, he wouldn't have been as funny as what he was and, um, uh, uh, you know, he played off of Bing Crosby the same way Lucy played off of Desi or Dean played off of Jerry because they were, uh, you know, there was the straight man and the funny man. But the funny man always had that straight quality to him. It's like I can poke at you and do something stupid, but don't tell me that I was stupid and don't poke back like you can dish it out, but you can't take it. So that worked really well. Like, I think the the most the best example of it was the honeymooners, and obviously, I think the better example of it was like Fred and Barney on the Flintstones. You know, you could dish it out, but you can't take it, and that struggle made it funny. So Bob was a great guy. He was super nice. And um, uh, funny story: every Halloween. Toluca Lake and the surrounding area. There was a lot of actors that lived there. Uh, Henry Winkler from Happy Days was there. Uh, Madonna had a house in the Hollywood Hills, which is right, pretty much right there. Um, there was a lot of us that were neighbors. And um, uh, Henry Winkler used to have a giant porcelain cow in his front yard and he opened up the gates and kids would come in and they would take pictures with the cow, sit on the cow, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't remember who the other actor was. It was somebody very popular uh, that used to give away like half dollars instead of candy uh, every Halloween trick-or-treaters. So Bob had this thing where um, he hired uh, 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 Chuck Barris, the, uh, 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 the car designer who did all of like he did the Adams fan. I mean, not the Adams, really the Munsters car, the Batmobile, Batmobile. Right. So, um, and, and Dragula and on and on and on. <clears throat> so he designed the ski, the Bob Hope ski nose golf cart. The golf cart was literally, it, it was a regular golf cart covered in gold, like paint with little flecks that would catch the sun and it sparkled like crazy. And it had a giant ski nose on the front because Bob Hope had that kind of a nose, you know, it was, it was like triangular and it had that, you know, that hawkish look to it. Um, and uh, uh, he used to take his ski nose picture. He had like a little caricature drawn up. And he would put that on something as branding. So one year he gave away Hot Wheels that had the paint, you know, the painted face on it. Another year he gave away kazoos. 
he would have candy made up with that on there. And um, every every year they would he would be at the door personally giving away stuff every Halloween that he and, and Dolores could do it. She was a, do- a dream. Um, they loved it. Uh, you know, these were, Halloween was the night where everybody got to act like Bob. Everybody got to go meet Bob. Everybody got had fun like Bob. And this was all of their children. Uh, great people. Seriously great people. In this industry, you'll meet a lot of people and only a few will stand out. I would say out of the 10 best people, Bob was nine of them. So he was just one of those guys. There were a lot of other guys that were great too. Um, I met Merlin Olson, the LA Rams football player. Uh, and also he became my father on uh, little house when I was on that show. Um, I met John Wayne. John Wayne was towering. I was this little shrimpy kid. Um, I was short for my age, chippy doll, red hair. I looked like Howdy Doody. And um, I'm standing there and I walked kind of over to a table and I looked up to him and I said, hey, I know you. And he said, I know me too. (laughs) And we started talking for a little bit. Um, Great guy. Um, James Arness, who was on Gunsmoke, great guy. Uh, a lot of the football players were fantastic. Um, they were very humble because they were not stars, but they were stars, uh, you know, on the show. Bob used to have this thing where he would bring out the best college football players uh, every year. Then he would bring out, like, super stars like Joe Namath and Rosie Greer, all the old football names. I won't bore people with them, but it was a fun time for television because today the housewives of blank are stars, which is nutty people on TikTok with dances stars, which is nutty. Um, things like, uh, 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 YouTube singers are stars, which is strange to me, not taking away anything from them, but we used to have like, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Landon, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, Rock Hudson would make appearances on shows, you know, uh, Granny from the the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. She was an amazing singer and dancer. And when she would come on shows, she would sing as Granny. But when the cameras were off, she would freak the audience out by singing. And she was an amazing singer. Um, I was floored because I watched that show in rerun, obviously, as a kid. And then all of a sudden, she'd be like, you know, granny, and she'd come out and do her voice, and blah, 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 blah. Then the cameras went off, and she'd be like Barbara Streisand. And people would freak out, and they'd all stand ovation and clap and whatever. So you meet like some, I met some great people doing his. And also, um, I did uh, a couple of other uh, uh, specials and I really enjoyed them as well. Um, you know, the, it was a different age. Hollywood was in like a different age, great people and you would meet them and then you'd never see them again, but it's like, you'd have a story to carry. And, um, I would go to like, 
a party or an event or something, and you'd hear people telling these stories like, you know, hey, I just met Loretta Sweat from MASH and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was I was on the set the other day of Police Woman and Angie Dickinson said this and slices of life, you know, it was very cute. It was so, you know, it, it, it's a very uh, it was great being a child actor because people treated you a little differently, too. If they loved kids, they were nicer and they had a little bit of a different attitude. I don't know how it is today, but I do know that like adults seem to attack each other more today, but the kids were like off limits and they were fun and people used to have a lot of fun, like working with a dog, you know, you'd be like, you know, you don't scream at the dog, you pet the dog. Okay. You know, that, you know, that kind of a thing or like, uh, Greg Evigan worked on uh, BJ and the bear and be like, you don't scream at the monkey. You talk to the monkey. Oh, okay. Do I give him a banana? No, he likes oranges. You know, it was like kid gloves, you know? So I miss being a kid and acting because it was a lot of fun. You know, your, your view was different too. Obviously, you know, being four feet tall and looking up at everybody was a different view, but <laughs> the the view was a little different because you didn't see so much of the bad side, you know, especially since when, when they argued and bitched and moaned, they didn't do it in front of the kids that much. Might've done it in front of the monkey though. Well, that's true. You know, I guess, I guess the monkey was, <clears throat> I guess the monkey was like, hear no evil. So it never, never passed. On <laughs> I saw, I saw the monkey that was bare. If anybody raised their voice, he would scream and slap his head and, and, and run around in circles and they would have a hard time catching him and he would run across the craft table and food would be everywhere and whatever. And, and somebody would always come out and be like, who yelled at the monkey? You know, and that was like a big deal, you know, same thing with kids, you know. All right, well, you need to go back in the school trailer now because we're going to shoot another scene. Okay, bye. And then 10 seconds later, you'd hear screaming in the background. What the hell is the matter with you? Blah, 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 blah. All right, get the kids again. We're going to do another shot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. Even at that age, I knew. I mean, it's like when the kids are in a different room and the parents are screaming at each other. And they're like, I don't want to go in another room. This is the best part, you know, get out of here. So it was a lot of fun. And, and the people that you met, you stay with, you know, stay with you a long time. So. Now you mentioned Merle Olson. You, you were on Little House of the Prairie. Right. And what was it like being on that set? Like working on, do you have any memories of that? Um, I was a big, uh, being that I didn't have a father, I was drawn to shows that had like strong male role models. So I loved like Captain Kirk and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Marshall Dillon, things like that. Uh, Lauren Green on Bonanza. Mm -hmm. I love shows like that. And I was a big Western fan. So when I got to meet, you know, Michael Landon, I was extremely happy um, because, you know, here's little Joe. Yeah. And I had already seen episodes of Little House. So, you know, here's Charles Ingalls, you know, and I was really excited. Um, getting to work with him was no pleasure. And I won't go into that. He was a nasty guy. He had a lot of problems. Um, and uh, the turnover on that set was like people walking through a revolving door. So I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to be rude to anybody who 
listens and liked him. And I don't like being a negative. God rest his soul. I, I, I know he worked hard. He just had a bad attitude. Um, all the, all the girls on the show were very nice. The young girls, um, very much enjoyed all of their company. We went to the school together. Um, when you're a child actor, you wake up at like four or five, you get to the set, they log you in, they put on your costume, they put on your makeup. Um, you walk around with like tissue paper in your collar so you don't get all the makeup. They do it a little differently now. And then, uh, you have to go to, well, I don't, again, I don't know what they do now, but you had to go to school on the set and they had like a social worker from like the department of education as a quote unquote teacher. And we would go to a trailer. Oh, so on little house, we would go to a trailer and we would have desks and we would have our book bag and we'd have all of our school books and homework. So my one teacher sent over Oh, you got to answer these science questions and you got to do page, let's say 10 and 12, 11 and 12. And you got to do like, you know, math. So we would go ahead and we would do all of that separate. One kid next to us might be someone in high school. The one behind us might be in uh, third grade. I might be in fifth grade. It wasn't like there was a, a lecturing teacher. It was just like a moderator. So then they would be like a, like a beep and they'd be like, oh, what do you want? You know, over the walkie talkie, what's up? We need Rusty to come on to the set for his close up. So I'd put my stuff down. I'd get out of there. An AD, assistant director, would walk over or a prop guy, whatever who was there, would walk me over to the set. I do my work. One time I remember I was doing Spanish homework, which I hated because I was never good at languages. I'm surprised I'm speaking English now and I was doing my stuff and I'm like right in the middle of something and I'm catching on to it. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm getting it. It's going to be so cool. Uh, we need Rusty on the set so he could do his thing, whatever it was. Okay. Close the book. Damn it. So I go out and this guy had a dog. He it was like walking a dog on a leash. And he goes, are you Rusty? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, I'm going to take you over to the set. Don't talk to the dog. Oh, okay. Don't pet the dog. Don't talk to the dog. Okay. So you hear things like that. You know, don't drink the water. Don't pet the dog. Don't go in that room. You know, and you have to listen. I don't care how, I don't care who you are. You could be Tom Hanks. Don't pet the dog. Okay. Dog's off limits. So they walk me over to where I'm supposed to go. I get on my hands and knees and crawl through bushes, fake bushes, to where my head is like just sticking out of the bush. And they go, all right, Melissa's going to say her line. You're going to say yours. Then we're going to cut. Then we're going to go to a extreme close-up of like just part of your face, and you're going to say something. And then we're going to cut, and we're going to do that. And then that's all we need you for for right now. So we did it, but the lights were so bright, right on my face. I mean, to the point where if I stayed there much longer, I would have had a tan <laughs> and it was bad and I could not keep my eyes open. I don't know. I have always had a little, well, first of all, red hair, blue eyes, terrible with light. 
Second of all, I'm a big wuss, so I have a hard time keeping my eyes open when it's bright. But um, this is killing me. And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm doing my lines, and they're like, cut. Uh, Rusty, we need your eyes open. Uh, weren't they open? <laughs> okay. That's the wrong thing to say. Uh, it's like, um, <laughs> excuse me where's his mom you know she'd come over what's the matter what's the matter dear you know stroking your face what's the matter dear are you okay are you all right and i'm like it's the lights are killing me uh just do your best uh get through this and then you can go home um and you can have an ice cream (laughs) (laughs) okay I really want that ice cream. So I'm like, uh, okay, all right, let's start again. So it's like, all right, say your line, action. And I'm dying. Cut. All right, I don't know what's going on. Lunch, everybody lunch, screw this, blah, 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 blah. I went home and I, I had a couple of days off. You don't shoot concentrically unless you're one of the big stars. They usually, for a minor star, usually what they do is, is they put your wardrobe together. They put you, they group your scenes together so that uh, if we're going to do, let's say, and a lot of shows don't do one episode at the same time. Let's say, for example, we have a scene like in front of the barn and everybody is all gathered in front of the barn. And then next episode, someone's sneaking around the barn. They'll shoot all those barn scenes because that's, it's easier to just take one setup. So uh, then a couple of days will go by. And then they'll try to do like all the ensemble scenes or multiples later. Easier that way on pay too, you know, rather than having everybody stand around. So I went to the doctor and I found out that I had chicken pox. And that's why I couldn't keep my eyes open in the light because it actually, it makes it, makes it well, anyway, whatever. It makes it so you can't see, you know, you can't open your eyes in the, in the light. So after shooting like 10 episodes and footage for like, oh God, it must've been 15 more. Um, I had to, I couldn't do any more. And Michael Landon got really pissed and there was like a big shouting match and on and on and on. And um, that was it. I was sent home. I was detached from the show. And when I got better, uh, they had already replaced my character with another actor and retooled it so that that person would stay with the show. And that was it. But the funny thing was all of my ensemble stuff, all of my schoolyard and and being in the school and everything uh, was all kept. So you could actually see me all through season four and part of season five. But even though I was playing that part, someone actually is playing the master of that part. So if you see kids running down the street playing or everybody's at the fishing hole or they're in church, like singing, that's me. But then when it comes to the close-ups and everything, that was the actor that took on after. But um, uh, great, a lot of nice people on the set. Um, I think the nicest person on the set who I got along with was uh, Allison Ingram, the one that played Nellie. Uh, the bratty blonde haired girl. Um, she was a very pretty girl in person. The camera did not make, was not flattering. 
especially with that kind of clothes and no makeup, you know, because it's a Western or a neo-Western, at least anyway. She was very pretty. She was very nice. She was very polite. She laughed. She had a nice little giggle. Uh, she grew up to be a very pretty woman. Um, uh, and now she's a, a great looking, mature woman. So, um, I don't, I haven't kept in touch with anybody from almost any of the jobs. It's too hard. If you're not constantly cur- like current with your work, uh, it's hard to keep up with anybody. I doubt that anybody would even remember me either. It's just a shame that the uh, chicken pox getting that and then, you know, and of course chicken pox takes a while to run its course. And I guess that's why they moved right. on, but it's still, it's, you know, it's still a shame, but I guess that's just the way the producers are. Right. It wound up being a godsend for me because I'll tell you what happened after I got the chicken pox, I was in, on my butt for three weeks, went back to school, finished out the school year, uh, I think another month. And then during the summer, I wound up having a starring role in an NBC movie. And then right after that, I did about 10 commercials almost right in a row. And by the time I went back to school, um, everybody saw me. So I went from being the little Cupid doll redhead nerd uh, who barely was there because I was working, coming back and everybody completely changed. Everybody was nicer. Everybody was everything. Um Obviously, it would have been great to have, you know, to say, oh, I was on Little House for like 10 seasons and I played this big part and on and on and on. But it actually worked out better. I made more money doing the movie than I did for a season of uh, Little House. And the commercials were great because I got to travel. I did so many great commercials. Seven Up, uh, Magic Mountain, which was a Six Flags amusement park. In California, I wound up doing uh, what was a Jewish Big Brothers, which was actually, you know, kind of a kind of a charity commercial, but it was everywhere. Like every time you saw some television, it was like Schoolhouse Rock when you were watching cartoons. It was all the time, everywhere, no stop. Um, So the notoriety was great. And uh, and then I went and did a a couple of plays, too. So it worked out really well, like uh, you know, I would have liked to have stayed on the show. Uh, having a legacy like that is nice, but the end result is is the work. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and then I had done two ABC after school specials, one of which I won an award for. So I was very happy with that. So if I didn't get the chicken pox, I don't know if I would have been able to do those parts. When you're with a show, a lot of times they won't let you do parts for other things like imagine being like a football player for a big NFL team. And then all of a sudden you say, you know, during the off season, I want to wrestle in the WWF. Uh, well, if you get hurt, you won't be able to do NFL. Oh, okay. Well, I would like to be in a movie. I'm going to be playing the part of, um, I don't know, transvestite. Well, that's going to ruin your image as a big football player. Oh, Okay. Um, I want to get a pet. Oh, that sounds great. What are you going to get? Alligator. Uh, let's think that through a little bit, you know? So sometimes you're not allowed to do certain things and, um, you know, it depends on, on what it is. Kids a little bit more lenient. Um, but let's say for example, I was on little house and I wanted to do a part where 
I was in a, a big movie. Oh, what kind of movie is it? It's a horror movie. Yeah, I get killed in the first three minutes. They cut off my head and bowl with it. Okay, I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's going to look very good when you come back to the show. So, which is one of the reasons why when you look at Westerns in like the 30s through the 60s, 70s, you were always typecast as the villain if you were good as a villain. Because if you were automatically the good guy, you would kill the next role that you were in and you would shed like doubt on some of the roles that you had done. <laughs> so, you know, that's just the way that is. So it opened up my whole career by getting knocked off of that show. Now you said you went to what NBC to do a movie. Mm-hmm. What was the, do you remember, yeah. the, do you remember the name of the movie? Oh yeah. Crash Island. It was uh Meadowlark lemon who was the star player on the Harlem Globetrotters and Pat Morita, who was karate kid, obviously Arnold on happy days. Um, a beautiful black actress, Sheila DeWitt, who was on uh, just about everything in the seventies, early eighties. She was on everything from the A team, uh, BJ and the bear, Sheriff Lobo, those shows. Uh, she was on Battlestar. She was on many action shows. Um, as a matter of fact, I just got contacted by one of the, she was a girl at the time, by this girl's agent, like maybe a month ago, asking if I had a copy of it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think I had a VHS of it somewhere. And you know how that goes. Yeah. So, you know. But um, it was a two-hour movie on NBC, and it was very popular and uh, at the time. And it had a very interesting life because when it went on, it was only seen on the East Coast because of something that happened political on the West Coast. It was uh, preempted. Then the second time it ran, uh, it was seen all over the country. And when it's shown, and it gets preempted and only part of the country sees it when it gets reran, they tie those numbers together because that would be considered still the first showing. So our numbers were very, very high and it was a very popular movie. Uh, people seem to like it. Um, it was a swim team of kids that were on uh, a plane and the plane crashes on this island and then right in the middle of that with you know the gilligan's island type at, at atmosphere um they meet up with a pilot who has been crash landed on the island a japanese pilot from world war ii who thought the war was still going on so it was very tongue-in-cheek cutesy you know it's 70s you know romp and um it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of. Uh, it was thirteen, fourteen weeks of being on location. Uh, heavy stunt work. We had to. They actually crashed a plane into the ocean so that they could do uh, work on the plane as a set, and we would be standing in three feet of water for hours. And uh, and the funny thing was, is my part was a, a kid called Fred. And he was like a rich upper crust kid and he was wearing a suit. 
So I had on a, 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 a white shirt with a tie and a black jacket and black pants and shoes. Everybody else was just dressed up in like jogging clothes, bathing suits, things like that. I was the only one out of the whole cast that wore this dumb suit. So here I am standing in the middle of water with leather shoes on and suit. And um, we would have to do like underwater stuff. It was terrible, but it was funny. We, we shot in uh, the Pacific Ocean, and then we went to Indian Dunes, which was a motorcycle. Uh, I don't want to say it was a track. It was like a giant sandy island-looking area. It was just out in the middle of nowhere, nothing special. But it looked like an island if you isolate certain parts. Like if you shot to the left, there's trees and there's, you know, brush. And then if you literally move the camera like a foot to two feet, it was just like sand. And then you'd see cars going in the background. So we'd be acting like we're on the island. And as we were looking at the camera past that, we would see like the supermarket across the street. So, you know, television, you know, it was very funny. So I enjoyed that part. That was, like I said, on location all the time. I saw your IMDb page and I tried to find it and and it's like, I, I see why they tried to contact you. Cause it's like, it's not, I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> you know, there's a couple of times where they have some great movies and people like, Oh, you probably seen this. I, I am a big haunt when it comes to Facebook and Twitter. I just, I enjoy them. Um, there's a lot of BS on there. I push past that. I don't like the politics. I don't like bashing. I look for the fun. So I laugh at the memes. My wife and I joke about the videos, the cat ones. And the, the she showed me one the other day of this guy casting a rod and he was running with it. And then he finally let go and he falls off the edge of the pier into the water and stupid stuff. So you've probably seen where people say, why isn't this show on video? Why isn't this show collected on DVD? Why isn't this movie on Disney Plus? It depends on the rights and it depends on uh, whatever. One of the people behind Crash Island was Arthur Nelson, who probably a lot of people don't know who that is. He was related to Ozzy and Harriet Nelson from the Ozzy and Harriet show. So um, actually, I got my start writing because of him. <laughs> which is an unrelated, boring story, which I'll go into in great detail in our fifth hour. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, he, was a, he was a big producer and, and a writer, and he was the one that cast me after that in doing the two after-school specials for ABC. As a producer at the time, you could actually have a production house and work for the big four and then do something else, then do a movie and then blah, 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 blah. Today, it's like a little harder. You, you don't really go between. Um, they have stables and they have contracts. Hey, if you did a good job here, we'd like you to keep going. So um, I did uh, that. And I think because of the fact of the way he wrote, there was no, uh, um, there was licensing involved. Uh, maybe one day it'll go someplace, um, but it's been a long time. I don't think that it's, 
you know, this is, you know, this isn't something that, you know, as, as a big call for, I have reached out to studios a number of times and asked if they could get, you know, copies, ask if they could maybe show it at midnight or whatever. But, you know, that's the way Hollywood works. It's all about licensing and rights. Um, you ever see those, those old, like, up, you know, up all night or uh, Elvira or whatever, where they show all those movies. Some of them are public domain and whatever. They'll go to a movie house and they'll pay for the rights to like 30 movies for one big price. And then they'll show them all. And then, you know, 30 shows later, they'll exchange two for two and they'll mix in something and they'll probably have enough for like a hundred nights. And that's like huge because, you know, every weekend for two years, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, just like Al Lewis, who played grandpa on the Munsters, he did a lot of hosting. Uh, Rhonda Shear did a lot of hosting in the USA network early days. All that stuff was, you know, public domain. She would pre-record stuff without even knowing what movies she was talking about and, and on and on and on. People would think, you know, I think the only one who was the most honest was the Joe Bob Briggs guy. He would do his thing. He was, he, he knew the movie. He was there. It was live. It was whatever. But um, anyway, uh, I would love to see it again. Cause it was a cute movie. It was family movie. There was no cursing. There was no sex. Uh, you know, nobody's butt in your face. It was just a fun movie. Um, I, I could see it. I could be, see it being a Hallmark movie. I mean, it was dumb family fun, you know? And I think sometimes that's what's missing is, is, is just the fun stuff. Um, of, I enjoy it. But speaking of fun movies, you had a, a, a bit part, a small role, whatever you want to call it. And one of my, and, and probably my, uh, and I the, the God favorite movie of Disney has ever made Pete's dragon. I saw it yeah. when I was nine years old with my dad and I just love that movie. My children love it. Um, this episode is coming out right after we, did our review of the movie. So people already know how much I, I love this movie from that episode. I know, I know you didn't have a big role in it, but I mean, you were in my favorite movie of Disney all time. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Um, I, another one of those where you're in class, they beep and they call you and you come running out and doing your thing. The good thing about, that film versus any of the other jobs that I did. And I'm glad that you liked it because it was a family. It was a lot of family back then. Um, I mean, you had your, like your, your dirty Harry's and you had your war movies and you had your cop movies, but musicals and family fun was, was a big deal. And I think, yes, a lot of that's missing now. It actually kind of hurts a little bit not to see it just because we grew up. Doesn't mean we matured. Um, and, um, so anyway, I got, you know, I got to run and play on the set streets. A lot of times they would just film the kids doing nonsense. We would do our dance moves. Think of something like Michael Jackson with his thriller where they're all, you know, standing in a row and they're all doing it. We would do that. We would rearrange. Okay. You're in the second row now. All right, you're on the end now. Now you turn this way. Then we would turn the camera. We would do it again, and on and on and on. They got some great stuff with that. It was it was fun. Um, 
Uh, Mickey Rooney was a dream to work for. Funny as hell. Joking. Um, there were stories about the Waltons when that was a big show. And Will Gear was the grandfather. And he was actually grandfather to all those kids on the Waltons. They would sit on his lap. He would talk to them. They would ask him questions like he was a parent. And he would answer them. He would tell them stuff about life. He would joke with them. He knew everything about them. Every birthday, he gave them cards. Mickey Rooney was like that on the set. I mean, it couldn't continue afterwards because it wasn't a series. You know, you you get together, you know, it's this secret mission time. You get together for one extraction and then you never see the guys again. So you're on a movie, you do the work and then you, you know, you know, maybe you see them again later on, but that's the end. So, you know, he would play Santa Claus and everybody would sit on his lap and they'd joke around with him because he was a child actor too. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, the Andy Hardy type, he was a, a child actor too. Him and Judy Garland were like as close as, you know, peanut butter and jelly. And um, they were they were great, you know. Uh, the Mickey Rooney's, the Shirley Temples, they had like a, a way about them when they grew up that they were still children. So, um, and it's funny because every time I look at um, actors like Jonathan Winters, I think of Mickey Rooney because that's the same. Jonathan Winters was also a great guy. I met him uh, uh, as well. And um, uh, Mickey Rooney was funny. He was always telling jokes. He was always doing not really magic, just silly things. Um, Helen Reddy was gorgeous. Like even at a young age, I would look at her and be like, this is that huge singer and she's beautiful in person. Uh, Shelley Winters was gorgeous even at an older age. She was a great actress. Um, let me think. Who was, you know, the big standout, I think, even though Mickey Rooney was my favorite, the big standout was Red Buttons. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> I, heard, I heard him and Mickey Rooney kept trying to one up each other when they were in scenes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, it was um, unrelated story during uh, The Magnificent Seven. Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen fought like cats and dogs. They hated each other. Yul Brenner said that Steve McQueen was stealing his, his scenes. Steve McQueen was like, screw him. I don't care. You know, I'm acting because Steve McQueen wasn't even supposed to be in the movie. So they didn't want him taller than Yul Brenner. So they would always dig like a little trench for Steve McQueen to walk in or stand in uh, to make him so that he was just a little tiny bit shorter than him. So he used to do this thing where he would like tap his holster or he would click his gun or something and it would draw your attention right to him and it would take it away from Bill Brenner. So he's just one day, ah, couldn't take it anymore, <laughs> screaming and yelling. These two were lovers. They were not fighters. They were not Hollywood mm-hmm. tough men. So Buttons would do something and Mickey Rooney would laugh and it would cut. You're not supposed to laugh there. Are you kidding? Look at him. You know, that kind of thing. Um, same thing. Same thing with um, uh, the John Wayne movie. Uh, I can't remember the damn name of it. Wow. Anyway, same thing with the John Wayne movie. Oh, I think it was Hatari, mm-hmm. where um, the they kept. Bu- yes. 
they kept busting each other up. They, they, they said this was a movie that John Wayne was basically playing a Western tough guy in the middle of this African safari. And they all kept busting each other up. They had to do like a hundred takes of every scene that had anything because they'd be like, but, uh, somebody would say something and they'd be like laughing their butt off. And, you know, somebody would burp and they'd be laughing their butt off and the monkey would fart and they'd be laughing their butt off. And, you know, all of a sudden they'd be right in the middle of a scene and a lion would walk by and the handler would be like, not me, you know, and this lion would like walk by while they were on the scene and they'd be like, nobody touched the lion. Okay. <laughs> keep talking. You know, and like I said, again, hidden rules, nobody touched the lion, nobody drink the water, you know, don't look up that kind of thing. And, um, they would bust each other up. So we'd be on the set and we'd be dancing and we'd be like, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. And then somebody would say something stupid. And then all of a sudden, cut, you know, and it's like, we can't keep doing this scene over and over again. The kids are getting tired, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, whatever, if they had gag reels, the way they did have them, but see, Back then, a gag reel would be like the director or the producer would say, isolate that part, Jerry, and put it on the side for me. And give me a clipping later. And then they'd have personal stuff like at their house. And they'd be like, this is the gag reel. Everybody gets together, you know, a couple of hot dogs on the grill, a couple of martinis. Let's all watch the gag reel. Today, it's like special feature on a DVD. If they had gag reel back then of the, like they do special features today, um, you'd be surprised. It would be a whole movie on its own. Like if they left in some of the better gags and they did whatever, uh, they would do that. There was one part where one of the actors fell down and they yelled cut like a half a minute later and they were all laughing and cracking up and they left it in the movie um, because it was funny. You know, here we all were like, like in the street doing something and the two stars would be singing and some idiot in the background extra walking by with a wheelbarrow slips and falls in a horse crap that was on the ground and, and, you know, whatever. And everybody would just tear down laughing and they left it in the background. You know, um, the set was always fun, always fun. Like there are people who work in banks and they go to work every day. They go home. Thank God it's Friday. Oh, I hate this. I got to go back on Monday. Oh, thank God Monday's a holiday. We would be like, we were done at like eight o'clock at night and we would spend an extra half hour talking. And then we would drive home talking about what we did that day in the car, then over dinner, then go to bed and wake up excited like, oh my God, mom, we got to go to work. You know, I need 10 more minutes. No, get up. We got to go. I want to get there. I want to see what they're doing. Um, Rooney was always punctual. I, I, the industry lies about him being uh, a drinker and the, the bum attitude, which I hated. Um, he was always on time. He was always prompt. He knew every damn line. He knew every line of every person of every show that he's ever done. Uh, he was courteous. Um, uh, you know, I, I found things about him that I thought were very admirable, um, you know, in the, in the profession. Same thing with guys like, uh, well, like John Wayne was very admirable too. Um, you know, he was a man's man. 
um, I'm waiting for Hollywood to find the next John Wayne. They keep pushing The Rock. They keep pushing Jason Momoa. They keep pushing whatever. You know, God bless those guys. They have great careers and they're great guys. I won't take anything away from them. Nobody is John Wayne. So, you know, in this case, um, they can push all the guys that they want. Nobody's Mickey Rooney. He was, he was the best. Um, they didn't break the mold after. Just nobody could fill it. I mean, that's it. And uh, I, I say that about all the shows that I've ever worked on. He was the best. Um, look at his career. Somebody pull up his IMDb and look at his career because that's not the career of somebody who didn't work hard. Um, and he worked right up until he died. Yep. So he did a lot of stuff that people didn't even know or hear about, a lot of foreign stuff, a lot of private stuff. A lot of interviews, even interviews are work. People think interviews are just conversations. Interviews are work. Getting going on the Tonight Show, going on, uh, uh, you know, Merv Griffin, going on some foreign thing, Top of the Pops, any of those things, that's work. You still got to go in, wake up early, uh, get your makeup, sit in front of a large audience, entertain. Um, sometimes your persona is a mask that you wear. Um, like Robin Williams, he was like a very quiet guy. He wasn't a nut 24 hours a day. He was only a nut on camera. Mm -hmm. You know, Henry Winkler was the Fonz until the cameras went off. He was quiet, barely talked, went home. Harpo Marx of the Marx Brothers, he, was, he never talked in public ever until his very last appearance any place. He said goodbye. And that was the first thing he said on camera ever. So, you know, it, it, interviews are work, too. He did a lot of work and a huge, huge talent. Oh, I love I love watching lots, so many different Mickey Rooney. But you're, you're talking about Boys Town. It's a mad, 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 mad world. And then it's a big favorite of mine in between. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a black stallion. Right. Well, you know, also, what was the what was the common denominator in all those movies? Not just him, family. I don't remember him ever playing uh, a, a nasty drunk. I don't ever remember him being a, a bastard. I don't ever remember him being in a film that didn't have something to it that was wholesome. Um, it might have been a bad film, but he was wholesome or uh, whatever. Um he was the way John Wayne was a man's man. He was a boy's boy. He, he, he was a boy all the way until the day he died. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was the, uh, he was the, the Andy Hardy, the Dobie Gillis, the Gilligan, the, you know, the, the ne'er-do-well. He was great at those parts. And when he got older and he started being gruff, like a Wilford Brimley or, um, the way Clint Eastwood had done a lot of his older roles uh, on and on and on. John Wayne and the Shootist, which is, I think, one of my favorite Westerns of all time. Um, he filled that role very well. He definitely went from being a dead-end kid to a, a, a Santa Claus-type grandfather at the end. And he, uh, he filled those roles masterfully. Um, he wore a lot of hats and he wore a lot of shoes, as they say in the industry. 
So uh, he was great, but nobody could be, I don't think anybody could really beat him. People will argue, there's always somebody who's going to say the favorite, and a lot of kids are going to talk about, um, you know, big guys today because they don't have the frame of reference. But I studied Hollywood for a long time. Like, I like television and movie trivia. I watched a lot of old stuff. Um, Mickey Rooney was a one-man comedy troupe, just as much as the Marx Brothers, uh, Hope and Crosby, Martin and Lewis, on and on and on and on. Uh, Three Stooges, uh, he was he he did it all like he was great. So that's what made the set so fun. Um, the parts where the cartoon dragon, the animated dragon war, were very funny because somebody'd be holding up like this dragon drawing, you know. Look up here, you know. It kind of reminds me of um, oh, what's the name of the? I, I, I'm terrible with names. The name of the guy that plays. Um, the Hulk in the Avengers movies now. Oh, Mark I'm so terrible. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, he'll wear like, he'll have like a, a, a brace around his neck and a head that's up here so people know where to look in the eyes. But he'll be talking, like he'll be talking out of the center of the Hulk's chest. And it's just a regular costume, you know. He may be doing something where he's got ping pong balls all over him or or spots or whatever, his arms will be a certain way or whatever, or he'll have Hulk hands, you know, that kind of thing on. But, um, you know, the, the dragon was good. I don't, uh, remember the boy who played the lead very well because he was always working. He was a very nice little boy. Um, the times that we played and the times that we worked together, he was very, very popular, but, um, just like the boy who played in Willy Wonka, uh, the, the Charlie character in Willy Wonka, he was kind of sequestered off a little bit because he always had something to do. Like he would record a voice, he would dance, he would do something else that was a stand-in, on and on and on. And that happens on a lot of shows. Um, because, you know, I mean, if your star, you know, breaks his leg while he's playing baseball with a bunch of extras, you know, what's that do for your, what's that do for your film? You know, uh, only Jackie Chan could run around on a broken foot. Um, <laughs> Jackie Chan had a kind of a funny story. He was working on a movie and he does his own stunts 90% of the time. So he broke his foot and they, they brought him into the hospital. Uh, it wasn't as bad, but he needed a cast. And they said, you're going to need the cast for like six weeks. So they went ahead and made the cast and then they made a special, they, they took his shoe off and they made a casting of his sneaker and they reversed it because, you know, obviously the instep, you know, so they reversed it. They made it rubber. They poured rubber into the mold, slipped it over his foot cast and painted it to look like his other sneaker. And then when he had long pants on, you couldn't tell he was wearing the cast. So for part of the movie, he was walking around doing karate and doing stunts while he was wearing a cast, but you'd never know because it was a rubber shoe over the cast. Um, and he talks about that like all the time. He was on some show in the UK where he talks about, yeah, I broke my, I broke my shoulder. So we had to shoot everything from the left. And, you know, I, I poked my eye one time and this one guy hit me in the stomach and, you know, I, I threw up and, Oh, the time I broke my foot and they put a rubber shoe on and, and on and on and on. 
I've seen him like in a not really a gag reel, but an error reel. Some of his uh, some of his mistakes make you cringe. I mean, it's like watching somebody you know get you know hit in the crotch and you like cross your legs involuntarily. <laughs> I would wrap myself up like a mummy watching him. I'd be, oh, jeez, that's his eye, you know, or holy crap, how did his hand survive that? Someone stepped on his hand when they were running. Or he got hit in the head with a pan one time, a frying pan. So very funny. But um, anyway, that was, a, that was a great movie to work on. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, everybody that was in it was very nice. Uh, there was a time where all the, all the people you worked with were super nice. Like you didn't hear stories. It was so rare to hear a bad story that when you heard a bad story, people would be like, Oh, really? Wow. Today you hear a bad story and you're like, yeah, they're all asses. <laughs> you know? So, it, it, you know, it goes from, it, it goes from, you know, the good to the bad quickly. So Today, I'm surprised that we don't hear more uh, good stuff being surprising, but all you hear is the bad, like everybody's into the negative. Oh, she yelled at him. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of the uh, uh, Brie Larson with the, uh, was it the Captain Marvel? Everybody says she's impossible to work for, and all, her, uh, all of her Avengers castmates uh, they did like interviews with her and they weren't happy being with her. Uh, Jeremy Renner snapped at her and Chris Hemsworth was like not happy. And she did something with one of the characters uh, from the movie. And he was like, don't touch me. Oh, was, yeah, like, really? Yeah, Don she Don yeah, he touched John Cheadle. Like, don't touch me. And those things make yeah. it over and over about people. Uh, I couldn't have a reputation like that. I'm only a little guy. I tell everybody I'm the smallest amoeba in the biggest ocean, and I'm happy with that. I carved out my little niche. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, I couldn't have a reputation like that. I couldn't have people thinking I'm a jerk. Anybody that's out there that doesn't like me, they have to find a reason, and that's okay. Nobody, nobody is perfect, you know. Um, there used to be a... There used to be a line in the industry that says there are people who hate Mother Teresa, and that's okay. So, you know what? It's okay if somebody doesn't like me, but um, I try very hard to be liked. I take everybody's side into consideration. I don't talk about politics, religion, sex, uh, anybody that pierces the veil, and I get to talk about those things. I'm respectful to the other side always, whatever it is. Um, I keep my opinions to myself, and when I give an opinion, I say it's my opinion. It doesn't, it's not meant to influence you and whatever. Now you talked so, about uh, Jackie Chan in the physical part. You yourself moved on to a very physical career in pro wrestling. And you, yes, you, you just I didn't wrestle. You won championships. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, more people are, into wrestling these days the way people were into comics in the 60s and 70s wrestling was actually people will argue about this um wrestling was actually one of the first shows on regular television it was one of the first shows that was broadcast on a regular basis 
There were no commentators. It was just basically from the garden, wherever the garden was. And it would be like the camera focused on one angle and all you would see was just wrestling and ropes and feet. That was it. And you would just, whatever, there was no commentating. There was no nothing. Um, the WWE, when it was known as the WWF, actually did a, um, a, a show like that. It was from the Long Beach Sports Arena. And it was no commentating, no nothing. The angle was like a three-quarter downward angle. The referee, the ring announcer would come out and you would hear the crowd. The ring announcer would come out, say, you know, blah, blah is facing blah, blah. And they would enter. There would be a little bit of music. Sometimes there'd be none. Referee would talk and then they would go at it. It would last for about two hours. Um, it was actually very popular at the time. So um, I got started in wrestling when um, I was a shrimpy little kid. And I watched it on TV all the time. And when I got to high school, I was, you know, dropped in garbage cans, put in lockers. I was a little kid. Um, I was younger than everybody else because I got put ahead three grades. And um, that was immensely tough. So when I got to college, the attitude was a little different. They're all adults. Like when you get, when you're in high school, you're idiots. And when, when you're in college, you're just older idiots. So, you know, but you're adults, you know, you know, that, that was so last week for me, you know, that kind of thing. So I got to college and um, I wanted to get into sports. I had dabbled in it a little bit. I played pro volleyball for a while. I really enjoyed that. Oh. I was on the, yeah, I was on the Budweiser volleyball team, beach team. I very much enjoyed that. I also played for uh, the college that I went to was LAVC. Um, and I went, I played on the Monarchs, which was the college team for a while. I even had an Olympic tryout. I loved it. Volleyball was, I thought volleyball was going to be my life. Um, so, uh, just, just, for, I, just for a second, I played, I love volleyball too. And when I was at college, yeah. we didn't have a, a varsity team. We had a club team and I was on the club team and I That's remember awesome. enjoying that and then going to different doubles tournaments. And to me, volleyball it's volleyball athletes are extremely well versatile because you're, you're doing everything. You're like literally diving on wood floors. You have to learn how to fall the right way. Yes. So you don't hurt yourself. Um, and, yes. kind of stuff. and it's such a team oriented sport where there's so many plays and anything you got to do to keep that ball from hitting or to get the ball down. It, it's, right. I, loved, I loved playing it. I did too. I thought it was going to be my life. I just, I loved it. I got, I went, when I went to high school, I went to Notre Dame. And um, when I played at Notre Dame, I learned from the athletic director coach there. We were constantly doing what was called dive drills. They would have, <coughs> sorry about that. I have a fan blowing right on me, so I apologize. Um, it's so hot here. Um, we had uh, like a dirt field. And what they would do is, is they would wet down the field and we'd have a mud pit, basically, uh, the size of a court. And what we would do is, is we would run and dive and we would land on our upper to mid chest and we wind up sliding for like a foot, two feet. Uh, and I learned how to put my hands out to do like a, 
uh, almost like a push-up type in reverse. Um, and and then I started learning how to put one hand out so I could hit. And then I learned how to do it with no hands. Uh, so if it wasn't for that, I never would have gotten into it. So my coach, uh, when I was in college, um, Mrs. Tan, she was a great lady. She taught me everything about volleyball. She was um, uh, uh, like a, a master, like a, just a master. It's like having a, a, a Sifu or a sensei uh, for volleyball. And uh, I had a great time. And I had gotten sick. I got uh, mono and I was laid up for about six weeks. When I came back to school, everything was gone. The volleyball program was all brand new people. Uh, and it was a big changeover. Mrs. Tan was gone. Uh, the, the team had replaced me, which is, you know, uh, proper. You know, they needed another person and they took my spot. And that was okay. Um, and I just said, you know, I'll try something else. This is, you know, I don't want to go back and try to regain. So I tried to uh, get into boxing. And um, while I was boxing, uh, uh, one of the uh, I was doing was um, uh, terrible. Like I was always, I was always on my butt. I was always getting hit in the head. I hated it. Um, so after one of the matches, uh, this big, huge guy—I mean, we're talking about 500, 600 pounds—comes up and says, um, "You were not." too steady there tonight and i'm like yeah I, I said thanks for telling me you know and then uh uh you know did you ever think at one point maybe you just wanted to grab this guy and throw him to the ground and i'm like well of course but you know there's rules he said how would you like the chance and he started talking to me about wrestling and i again major fan of wrestling i've been watching rick flair for many years um back when, you know, TBS had wrestling, uh, as Ted Turner used to say. And uh, uh, his name was uh, Dr. Jerry Graham. Him and his brother were the most winningest tag team in history, up till and including today. They had over 70 championships as tag teams from all over the world. Everybody from the uh, United States, Ireland, Africa, South Africa, uh, all over the UK, they were huge. He was the uncle of superstar Billy Graham, who was one of the big champions in the WWF. And um, he taught me how to wrestle, gave me all the moves, introduced me to people like uh, George De La Isla, who was Mr. Mexico, who had an organization in California. Um, through him, I met a lot of people and I wrestled uh, pretty much all over the West Coast, but I did do a couple of East Coast matches. Uh, taped some matches for other organizations like the AWA and uh, the Von Erics and WCCW. Um, it was a great time. It was uh, not as acrobatic and planned out as it was today. And I got to meet a great bunch of guys. Um, Hulk Hogan is a tremendously funny guy. Um, a man, another man's man who has a mold no one could fill. I don't care what anybody says about him. Uh, if it wasn't for him, there'd be no wrestling today. Um, Andre was a, a, a straight, uh, I, I, he was a God. Everybody called him the boss. He was the boss. 
um, very religious, very uh, uh, personal. He was a uh, uh, a good friend. When if you were friendly to him, he was extremely friendly to you. Otherwise, uh, if, if he didn't like you, he would just tell you right to your face. He would just be like, you know, don't talk. To me. You know that kind of thing. Um, but he was a friendly guy. And a lot of the guys like uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and uh, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, Dusty Rhodes was a pleasure to work with. Uh, the Von Erichs were, were God, God-loving, you know, God-fearing cowboys. They were fun. Um, on and on and on. Great. It was, a, it was a fun time. Then I got hurt. I probably have the record in the industry for being the first person to get injured and thrown out of the sport by a referee, <laughs> which is true. which is which is actually a true story. The referee was the one that injured me, and I got I, I basically left the sport because I got injured by a referee. Uh, how, how in so, the world do you get injured by a referee? I got you, 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 you built it up. How did you get injured by the referee? And I will tell you <laughs> how's that good. <laughs> That's like, that's like setting yourself up. Um, I was, we were in uh, Utah. We were doing a television taping. And uh, this was at a time when pay-per-views were just new. We had settled into a few and we did really well. A lot of people think WrestleMania was the first pay-per-view, but it wasn't. There were a couple of wrestling pay-per-views that happened before that. Excuse me. Um, one of the NWA pay-per-views was first. I think it might have been the Great American Bash. Somebody checked me on that. I think there could be another one, but they were one of the first. And there was a couple of smaller organizations. Um, they were not nationwide; they were regional. So we were doing a television taping, and the footage was supposed to be shown on uh, Channel Fifty Six in California, and we were in Utah. So we're outside on a football field. They have a steel cage set up around the ring. It was NWA rules. And we took off. It was uh, uh, myself and Ed Venture, who was the snake charmer, a big guy from Boston, covered head to toe in a black outfit with like a snake pattern that started around his neck all the way down, led down his arm, and it looked like, you know, like the tongue was his middle and, and index finger. And he would poke you. He would do like the heart poke or the throat poke. And he was nasty. And he'd grab you and blah, blah, blah. So the steel cage match lasted for about 56 minutes. It was so hot. I was bleeding from my eye. I was bleeding from my ear. Uh, it was all down. My arm had a big cut, a laceration, they called it. But it was really just a cut. <laughs> Just like saying I was six foot tall when I was really five foot, maybe eight or nine. And, um, you know, but hey, there's a lot of truth in that lie. So I was I was bleeding from my arm and it was all down my arm. My glove was so bad. I had leather gloves on. My gloves were so bad that when I got to the hospital, they actually had to cut the gloves off of me because they couldn't remove it. And they had to keep squirting me with alcohol because the blood dried on my arm. So I actually got a tan from the sun around the blood. So when you looked at me, I looked like I had like 
like a skin disease or vitiligo or something, you know, I have like these strings of dark and then these strings of light. It looked very, I mean, I look like an alien or, or something. So, um, we were in the ring. We lasted for a long time, 56 minutes or so in the last part, he missed a kick and fell into the ropes and hit the, the, the steel cage wall. And I grabbed him by the shoulder neck area and pulled back. And he, it was like an extra spring. It was like extra, you know, vaulting. He fell back and hit his head on the floor, the ring floor. And, um, he was just passed out. Like we were dead. We were so dehydrated. It wasn't even funny. Um, you know, there was like, there was no tasty cake break like Gorilla Monsoon used to say. So I called for the ring door to be open and <clears throat> all I had to do was walk through it. So I walk over to the, 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 the side of the ring, step through the ropes. You know, you have to bend through the ropes. Um, and I wasn't tall, so I really had to, you know, when you're tall, you really bend. But, you know, through the top and the middle. But I had to go through the bottom part. I wasn't, I'm not a tall guy. So I get to the door and it's just these little wooden carpenter steps outside because the rings are like, you know, five feet, six feet off the ground. So I put one foot on the top step. I go to put my foot on the next step. I start moving to the left. The stairs start moving to the right because it's on dirt. And wham, I land on my butt on the, on the ground. They slam the door, count to 10. He didn't get up. I won. And I'm laying there on the ground and the referees would like lift your arm up to say that you won. This was like a, uh, a non-audio way of showing who won because people in the cheap seats would be like, you know, I could barely see them who won. And then, you know, you wouldn't know. He lifted up my arm and it tore my rotator cuff. And it just, the pain was insane. Like I went the whole match and it was like dancing on glass. This guy lifts my arm up and it was like, I got knifed. It was just awful. He lifted my arm up and I just let out a yell. And when he dropped my arm, he just looked at me with wide eyes, all scared. And I didn't say anything because the crowd is watching, you know, you can't do that. And, um, they announced it and people were cheering and on and on and on. And they took me out on a stretcher and they took Ed out on a stretcher. We got in the back room and they're wetting us down with like sponges and throwing water at us. And they're putting our hands and feet in water for blood pressure, things like that. And, uh, wiping us off. And, and the nurses came over They we were really worked over and Ed and I are like joking with each other because we were good friends behind the scenes he was a musician and I was an artist and we were joking like crazy um, after it was over with, you know, because, you know, uh, it was, it, it was locker room BS, but you know, I was the, I tell everybody that was it. This is the last time I'm going to wrestle. I can't move my arm anymore. Blah, 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 blah. I went to the doctor, found out um, it was it's so bad that it was inoperable because at one point, it's like rebuild the shoulder or not. And I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want, I didn't take steroids. I wasn't into drugs at all. Um, I've actually been a purist 
my whole life. Like I don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs. Um, you know, that kind of a thing. And, um, I, I said, no, I don't want to take steroids. Uh, so they gave me, you know, injections to help me and they gave me medicine and I recuperated. You no, know, after a while I couldn't lift the same that I could before. I couldn't do the same type of things. That's it done out. That was it. I mean, I hated to do it, but you know, um, the title that I had went to somebody else anyway, like the week before. So it was kismet, you know, but, um, it was a fun time. It was an extension of acting. I was basically in a play every time I went out. Uh, I wrestled in, uh, Madison square garden. One time I wrestled all throughout California, Las Vegas. I was in maybe if I said I was wrestling 20 times, 18 of them were in Vegas. I wrestled at, uh, in Tijuana, Mexico. I wrestled in uh, uh, Canada. I had a great time there. Um, it was fun. But when it was over, you have to put it behind you and move on to something else. You know, um, I, you know I, was a great, I was great at the time having a lot of fun. But, uh, and, and I loved the fans were awesome. California was a great setting for it because there was a need for local entertainment versus national entertainment. You would have your big stars and everybody would chase you. But, you know, if you were in a local band or you were doing local wrestling or you were a local artist, people would be like, you know, wow, that's the guy. I like talking to that guy. So we'd be at like um, Chris Palumbo's bar uh, on Olive Avenue in, uh, uh, Burbank where he had all the wrestlers would be like the Nikolai Volkovs and the Iron Sheiks and on and on and on would come all the time and they do backyard barbecues and the public would come and saw, see us sign in Vegas at the Stardust Casino and things like that. It was big for a long time. It lasted for a long time and I enjoyed it, but there was no way I could continue. And I don't, I'm one of those people that doesn't like to fool himself, you know? So, um, and, and in a recent type of thing, I'm having problems with my back and my leg and my shoulder. Um, and I had been doing comic book conventions and, uh, trading card conventions for a long time. That's where you and I met was at the mid Atlantic nostalgia con. And I, I love doing it, but i after doing maybe 400 shows in my life, I had to stop because it's just a little too much. Um, doing a show in New York, four or five hours away, sitting in the car, um, sitting at the show, having problems. I wound up getting a bad infection and I was in the hospital for a week, a couple of years ago. And, uh, I can't do that anymore. Like it's too hard. Yeah. You know, I can't sleep in the hotels. The food is terrible. Hard chairs at the convention. Um, People were constantly asking me to get up and take pictures with them, uh, do funny stunts with them. I would always pose and be funny with the cosplayers. And I got that reputation of being fun, but um, it, the pain was too much, like physical pain. So, it, it, you know, and uh, there were other things involved too. You know, a lot of times when you do these shows, uh, you have a table and you put your wares out. I wasn't making as much money. Um, a lot of my stuff is older and a lot of people are, they can buy retro stuff online. Like you can make a fortune on eBay or if you have an audience like on Twitter or Instagram, you can make a fortune with your stuff. So 
I just shifted what I was doing. It's easier for me to work at home than it is to go out. Um, sometimes I'd go to a show and the show, I'd probably make like a hundred dollars for the day, which is awful, uh, compared to some guys. And then you'd come home and you'd be like, Oh, you know, $600 on eBay. Why didn't I stay at home? Yeah. So, now one of the which is okay. You talk about your artistry. You've been a, an artist for many different films. Yeah. Some of them as a storyboard artist, some of a production art, but you've been involved in heavy metal, the 1981 heavy metal, Spider-Man two, Spider-Man three, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers it goes on and on. Um, what can you, heavy metal is something I remember seeing as a teenager. And to me, it's, 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 it's everybody should see this film because it's just it's just the the animation and everything. But before you soundtrack can... is amazing. Oh yeah, soundtrack. The soundtrack is probably one of the best soundtracks ever, next to let's say Jesus Christ Superstar. I would uh, you know some of the the this was a soundtrack that wasn't made for a it wasn't made for an animated film. It was like a concert. This was like a best of greatest hits concert people like uh sammy hagar cheap trick black sabbath nazareth uh stevie nicks this was uh, a who's who this was like the kind of phenomenon that came from having a soundtrack like heavy metal was like the phenomenon of the villains on the batman 66 show everybody wanted to be a villain everybody wanted to be uh, uh, you know, on the ba- on the show, everybody wanted to be behind the open window when they crawled up the side of the building. And and I'll give you a little bit of trivia. You know who was supposed to be the next Batman villain before the show was canceled? Nobody gets this right. The next villain to appear on the Batman sixty six show before it got canceled. I have no idea right now. I'm blanking. I, I, I don't even want to try to hazard a guess. <laughs> It was Frank Sinatra was going to be the next villain on the show, and it got canceled. And when when NBC had picked up the show, ABC said that they destroyed all the sets because they didn't think anybody was going to pick it up. And when that happened, they they said it was too expensive to redo it, so they never did it. But it was quoted that because of the fact that NBC had so much success with family entertainment – the show probably would have lasted possibly another eight to 10 seasons if, if they didn't destroy the sets, um, which is actually something that's very big in Hollywood. Going back to the little house uh, uh, part, the last days of little house, Michael Landon was very proprietary about his show. When Bonanza uh, canceled, there was a big, movement about where the Ponderosa was and the Ponderosa house was turned into like a Bonanza museum. And there was a, a huge town that was made into like an amusement area, not really a park, but um, it was up there. And he hated that the Bonanza steakhouse and Hoss had his own, uh, Dirk Blocker had his own restaurant chain before he passed away. Blah, 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 blah. Same thing with uh, Alan Hale, the skipper on Gilligan's Island. He had a big thing about the 
he was always the skipper the same way grandpa was, uh, was always, you know, from the monsters. So, uh, he got really pissed and NBC wanted to reuse some of the houses and some of the sets facades of Walnut Grove, which was the, the town, uh, from little house. So on the very last day, he dynamited and set fire to all of his sets and completely destroyed them, including that little bridge that you saw going into Walnut Grove. And when they came to pick up stuff, there was nothing there but ash and, and, and junk. So it's very popular to like destroy the sets. So that's what they did on, you know, on the, on the, you know, they, they got rid of everything, all the bat cave stuff, the set for, you know, the, the, the house at Wayne Manor, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, commissioner Gordon's office all taken down because everything else was just built up. Every time you saw the villains, they were always in some warehouse looking room or something. It was all nonsense. You know, it was the same room, just decorated differently, probably had a million coats of paint <laughs> on it or wallpaper. But, um, uh, so anyway, um, the soundtrack was amazing. It really was. I was actually funny story about, well, well funny quip about heavy metal. I was too young to see the movie when it came out in theaters. So when it came out in the theater, I had to wait like four years before I was able to see it. So I didn't even know what the movie looked like until like four years later, because when you're, you know, when you're 14, 15, you know, you just can't walk into an R rated movie, but, um, very exciting time. I had an agent. Her name was Mitzi McGregor, and she was in Los Angeles. God rest her soul, because she's the one that gave me the name Rusty. And uh, she was the one that had vision. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. And uh, uh, I, I had done a lot of acting through her, a lot. And then she... Uh, showed my artwork. She was like a grandmotherly type. My mother and my my and I would walk into her office for a monthly meeting. How you doing? Oh, we're gonna put Rusty up for this part. Oh, it's great. Blah 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 blah. My mother would go through it, and then she'd like lean over and look at me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Blah 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 blah. Want to see the artwork? You know, want to see my picture? You know that kind of thing. And she looked at it and she thought it was great. Oh, can I have this? Oh, I want to hang it up. This is beautiful. You know, I would draw like all monsters, like werewolf by night, and crazy stuff, whatever. She didn't know what I was talking about. She just loved the idea that here's this little spirited, nothing little cutie doll kid. Like I said, I was like howdy doody. I was like scrawny little, you know, red haired kid, blue eyed kid. And she'd like look at my artwork and take an interest you know, tap my shoulder and stuff like that. So one day she goes, um, would you be interested in doing something with this new movie? And I said, oh, yeah, what is it? You know, I mean, obviously as an actor, you know, hey, would you like to work? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think anybody has said no. So she uh, she says, have you ever heard of heavy metal? It's like, boing. You know, I'm obviously a big comic book collector. I, I had tons of comics. Like, not like a normal kid. I really had tons of comics. And uh, my mother supported my, my creative habit. So I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. That's like the closest thing I could ever think of. That would be like somebody saying, hey, would you like to work on the new Doctor Strange movie? 
boom, you know. So I'm like, yeah, this is great. So uh, she goes, okay, it's not as an actor, it's to do artwork. Oh, okay, that sounds cool, you know. Today, if somebody asked, I'd be like, um, how much is it? What's the deadline? What do I have to do? Back then, it was like, yeah, you know, because they'd be like saying, you know, do you know how to surf? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll do it. Sure. And then go home and read up about surfing and then go try it and then, you know, fall on your butt a million times. And that actually happened to me. Somebody goes, do you know how to roller skate for a commercial? And I said, uh no. And she goes, never say no. Always say that you can do it and then fail at it because they can't fire you. <laughs> it's like, uh, really? So I wound up doing a commercial for these granola bars called Crunchola, which was like a big, Crunchola was like a, a uh, like a, like a, a nature's valley or like a, a Hershey at the time. I got on the roller skates and they had me um, in Hollywood and we were just on a street. All I had to do was just skate by. That's it. I stayed up for about three seconds and then, you know, my butt had a big conversation with the concrete. You know, that was about how that went. Uh, except that one time the, uh, uh, the handler didn't catch me and I wound up skating almost all the way down a big hill until I like took a big collision and, and slid about 10 feet and uh, everybody was like screaming, Oh my God, is the kid dead? You know, blah, 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 blah. Like, I thought you knew how to skate. I said, Oh, skating. Oh, that's not what they told me. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like anything to get them to leave me alone. You know, the, I just want to do the commercial. I did my lines and I went away. The skating was like, one second and my lines were like 10. So it was like, if I screwed up on the skating, but I did good on my lines, I'd be okay. So they left in the part where I fell and slid and they took out some of my lines and the commercial was totally different because they thought it was funny to see me wreck rather than see me act. So she was right. But, um, uh, you know, I was like, you know, do you want to do art for this movie? Yeah. So I wound up doing um, like, oh God, I must've done about 50 or 60 small drawings, skulls, bones, vines hanging up, whatever. And in those days, there was no internet. There was no uh, cell phones. There was no overnight shipping. There were no Xerox machines. There was nothing. So um, I had to do everything. I took pictures of my work by Polaroid because I had no way of documenting it. Excuse me. There was no overnight. So the closest thing we had to overnight was we would take all my drawings, put it in a pouch. We would have to drive to Los Angeles International Airport and they would actually put it on a seat on an airplane and they would fly it to Canada as part of like, here's, here's this big commercial plane like uh, United or American Airlines and all these people are going to Canada and my artwork is like you know in the cargo hold and when they un, you know when they unload it they're like oh, okay this goes to the, the desk and some secretary would be there to you know show ID pick up the artwork and leave our conversations were terrible because they spoke mostly French and it was broken English I didn't speak French at all. I'm surprised they knew English. And um, the, the, at that time, today, you could call 
I don't know, any place in the Middle East, and it's just part of your phone bill. Back then, it was, or your phone plan, I mean, back then, it was like two ninety nine for the first minute and 25 cents each additional minute plus tax. So the conversations were like, hello, you better record this the next time because we don't have very much time to talk, blah, 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 blah. We need you to do this, 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 and this. And they'd go into detail and they'd be like, all right, do you have any questions? We have 20 seconds left until this minute is up. All right, great. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> that was it. We did that maybe 10 times. And uh, I was very disappointed. They didn't like any of the artwork I did in the beginning. I was like crushed. But then they started to, they didn't give up on me, which I thought was nice. Came around, they told me a couple of things. And uh, I did a lot of background blips and things here and there. Um, most of the stuff that I did was in the B-17 sequence called the Pacific Pearl, which was the World War II plane that the you know the green orb was chasing. And then he landed in the zombie graveyard, airplane graveyard at the end. Um, I also drew a picture of a Conan looking knife that was dripping with blood that was used on the subscriber cards for heavy metal magazine. Um, I didn't get paid for that, but it was just, you know, I didn't care. Um, I was probably the only person who went to the newsstand to find heavy metal magazine to get one of those cardboard subscriber cards that people used to throw away just so I could have a piece of my work. I remember going to the newsstand and getting like when the guy was, tr was like doing the cash register for everybody else, newspaper, 50 cents or quarter or whatever. And, you know, Hollywood magazines, a buck. Every time he turned his head to do something, I'd grab one of those cards off the ground. They'd be like, aren't you going to buy anything? Nope. Sorry. You know, you don't have my latest issue of whatever it is I'm looking for, but I'd go home with like all the cards you know, the crap that people would throw away. They don't do it today like they used to, but um, I thought that was very cool. Then I wound up one day signing all of those and giving them away and not having any. But, uh, you know, that's, I don't collect anymore. I used to have literally over 10,000 comics, and that's not a joke. I was a pig for, for buying. I would buy whole boxes sight unseen, keep all the stuff that I like, give all the direct to everybody else, and walk away happy. Uh, and, and that was it. And I read everything at least 10 times, but um, I had to stop collecting because uh, I, I just, I couldn't afford it. So the last real comic book I bought was probably about 2000. Um, everything since then has been, you know, old stuff, collector stuff, uh, trade paper back here and there, a lot of blank covers so I could donate them to charity things like that, uh, a friend comic here and there type thing. But um, that movie was a lot of fun. I wish that I had gotten to meet any of the people on it, but it was also, uh, I was working from home. You know, I, I was lucky that they took a chance on me. Um, you know, because I was, they didn't even know how old I was. I mean, to be honest, uh, because, you know, who hires a 14-year-old to work on, an R-rated movie. Um, I had a similar experience where I wrote this article about veterans that was supposed to be published in Los Angeles Times. And it was very, uh, it was a great article about veteran affairs. I researched it pretty well because I, I went to Notre Dame and there was a lot there. Like these are, you know, 
There was an all-boys school. There was no girls. There was Brothers of the Holy Cross. They were like priests that were the teachers and the faculty. And, you know, they were all tough guys, man's man, blah, 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 Notre Dame football and rah, rah, rah. And I was working, you know, I doing this article. And uh, I submitted the article. It won an award locally. And they wanted me to come into this award banquet to collect the award. So my mother and I show up at the office and they're like, you know, oh, why are you here? Well, I'm supposed to see Richard, whoever it is, the editor um, about the award ceremony, this article. Oh, okay. Is your dad here? And then you can all go up. I was like, no, it's me. Oh, well, you know, the, the person who wrote the article, uh, I wrote the article. Hold on. And then there was like a bunch of hurried calls. They bring me up into the office and the editors, nope, nope, this, nope, not going to fly. Nope. This is insane. Blah, 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 blah. Looked at my mother and said, you wrote it, right? And put his name on it. She's like, no, I'm too stupid. I can't write all this other stuff. And um, he says, okay, here's your check. Here's your award. And there is no way that we're going to bring a young kid out to collect an award for this. So what they did was, is when the award ceremony came along, they got one of the guys in the office to pretend to be me. And they took his picture and put it in the program saying that he won the award for writing the article. So I wasn't even old enough to be displayed. So like I said, it wasn't the first time. But when you grow up being a child actor and you do stuff like that, you have a different mentality. It's work. Um, you become opinionated, you become a little smarter than your age, you age a little differently. Uh, when you're 15, you're like 30. And, you know, you know, the ins and the outs, you know, you're used to calling people, you know, a blank, you know, uh, you know, son of a blank or whatever. And you're like, uh, you know, you're jaded a little bit, you know, what side of the toast is buttered on, you know, that kind of a thing. And you can be a little demanding and you can be a little opinionated and you can be a little bit of a jerk. And uh, people will look at you and go, oh, what is it like, you know, 13 going on 50? I get it. You know, that kind of a thing. But um, I did mine creatively. So I did artwork. I did writing. I did singing, voice acting, dancing. I, I sang opera for a couple of plays. Um I didn't take the nasty route and the negative route like a lot did. And I didn't go the child actor route and drink, smoke, do drugs, get into fast cars, things like that. I kept my nose clean. Um, I had to support my mother and grandmother and I would go to work and I would, they would use my money to pay the rent and buy clothes and pay the bills and on and on and on. Um, so it was a little, it was a little different. I didn't have the kind of childhood that a lot of people had. Um, I worked a lot. So today I get up and I work every day and work is fun to me, you know, but back then it was different. So here, you know, here this movie comes along. I was like set for life, you know, um, but it was a lot of fun. The, the movie was fantastic when I finally got to see it. Soundtrack was the most amazing thing I ever heard. As a matter of fact, I still listen to the soundtrack as early as a couple of days ago. So. It's, it's a, it's a really fun, I mean, it's a really good movie. 
and, and, and a lot of yeah. people haven't seen it, um, but they should seek it out. One day, I'm mm-hmm. sure when I get die, when I win a diecast thing, I, I almost did it recently, but I decided to do Pete's Dragon instead. So it was, it was, I, was I was tossing between <laughs> heavy metal and Pete's Dragon. That was going in my mind as the, as the what movie to review. <laughs> right, <laughs> tells you my mind. That's what I have. It's it was fun. It was mature. There was some nudity. There was some harsh talk, but the whole movie was basically an anthology of some of the best stories that were in heavy metal. Uh, Richard Corbin's Den, Captain Stern, uh, Tarna. These were fantastic pieces. Heavy metal started out as a magazine in France called Metal Herlant, and it was bought and brought over to the U.S. market uh, in later years. Um, Kevin Eastman owned it of the Ninja Turtles owned it. I don't know who owns it now. I tried to contact them because they were supposedly doing a new movie. And I said, I would love to be involved in one way or another, even if it's free, just to be able to say, Hey, I did something, but uh, they didn't answer. I've heard a lot of people have talked to them and nothing has come from it. So I don't think they're really going to make another one. Um, And the second movie was terrible. The Heavy Metal 2 was terrible. They tried to duplicate the soundtrack by making Heavy Metal music. And what they didn't realize was Heavy Metal had nothing to do with the music. Heavy Metal, like as a term, Heavy Metal was actually coined as being these were hard, shiny, solid, you know, stories. This was like hard grit. Um, this had nothing to do with the music. It was just similar. It's kind of like saying independent. There's independent comics and there's independent music. It doesn't mean the same thing. So, um, which is a shame because if the second movie was like the first, it would have been bigger because they would have introduced people to a whole new medium. When it came out, that, that, that movie audience was crying for stuff like that. Um, heavy metal, wizards, fire and ice, things like that were amazing. All the stuff that Ralph Bakshi put out, amazing. But it was a fun movie. I actually wish I could have done a voice. I would have enjoyed that just as much. But what can you what can you do? You know, um, I was lucky to get anything that I I got on that movie. So now, you, like I said, you did the storyboards for Spider Man two, three, and. Captain America, the first Avenger and the Avengers. What is it like doing storyboards? Can you explain to people that might not be familiar what a storyboard artist is or does? Well, um, I did this. I, I did. Okay. Storyboard art is just like being a director and planning. Uh, the scene is, um, Stephen walks from the left side of the room to the right side of the room with a sword. Um, and, and there's an explosion and he turns around and there's like a bunch of zombies and he slices a head off and goes at them and blah, blah, blah. Typical walking dead scene. So the first panel is, you know, it shows a picture of him walking to the side. We draw an arrow to show what the movement is. It's basically like planning out, portions of the scene it helps the director it helps the actor it helps the producer um stuff that i did for spider-man two and three helped the wardrobe department uh on and on and on it really depends on 
what you're what they're looking for. If you look at some of the Disney, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like backward features, where they show the person doing the storyboards and acting it out, and then pinned up on the wall and everything. Um, I didn't get to do pitches like that, but th that's actually what the art is like. We're, we're basically doing the whole movie on paper, flat by flat, and each panel represents action um, that the, the character is taking. I mostly do what's called production art. Like I'm working on a sci-fi film right now, and uh, I'll be doing posters that will appear on the wall in the background, like the 50s propaganda posters where it's like, you know, Uncle Sam, we want you type of thing, or, you know, join the Marines, loose lips, sink ships type of thing. So I'm doing stuff like that. Also, artwork, sometimes your artwork in production art might take you to doing a sign on the wall, danger, do not enter, uh, the name of a club, um, you know, the Tokyo Club, the Harvester Club, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it could be license plate, fancy license plate. It could be, um, you know, here is your Avengers ID with your picture on it type thing or, or whatever. Uh, maybe a special shirt. Somebody like you see Cobra Kai, they've had many shirts with artwork on them during the show. My favorite is the one where it's the eagle, but he's got teeth which makes no sense. Um, somebody drew that as production art. And uh, sometimes you're designing uh, uh, costumes for characters. Sometimes it could be a prop on the wall, like your Batman back there. If you were in this scene where we're watching you at the microphone, but you've got like a Batman toy on the shelf, but it's something like, uh, you know, some made up character. Uh, we'll go ahead and put that in the back. If you remember in the Avengers uh, first movie, they had, um, uh, what was it? Agent Coulson hands Captain America. He shows him Captain America trading cards. Mm -hmm. Some production artist made those. And those aren't real cards. Somebody made those. They got them printed in their print shop for the studio. And like when I worked at NBC in California, we had a giant print shop and prop shop. You hand them the orders. They put these things together. They look real. Like you would think like, oh, okay, there's like 10,000 of these. No, there's only one, um, you know, of them. Uh, it could be a special kind of wallpaper. It could be anything. Badges like McDonald's badges for a movie could be anything. But production art is, is fun because um, it's not always the same thing. You don't always draw like the main character. Sometimes you draw, it could be graffiti on a wall. You're designing something, you know, you get to do whatever, you know, they ask for. It could be something. Not everything is a prop. Uh, so like for the, uh, the movie Bigfoot um, that I did for uh, Absurd Productions, that won a ton of awards. It was seen in theaters all over the country. A uh, very well-known horror film from the past couple of years. Not only did I do the movie poster to make Bigfoot look like the Casablanca poster back from the 40s, but I also drew a wanted poster that appeared in the film, and I did artwork of the heads of the various Bigfoots, 
uh, and they use that for the DVD cover and, and for the, uh, when they, you know, for the opening, like, uh, the menu for the DVD. Um, I've done a few others that have been like that. I did one for Odyssey that had a big COVID, uh, like a sun setting over, uh, uh, the city. And that was used for, uh, a few things. Sometimes I'll do something and it'll be used as a shirt. So production art is a little bit more liberal. Um, and sometimes it uh, means you do some storyboards too. You know, it depends. When I worked on the Spider-Man film, I did some storyboards and then I did a bunch of stuff that, that appeared like uh, on the floor in the background. But, you know, you have to do stuff like that. You can't just go buy a magazine and throw it on the floor. What's the rights? You know, what's the licensing for the name? Even something as simple as Time Magazine, it might be well known, but there's got to be rights to it. You got to be able to say Time Magazine belongs to blah, 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 blah. So production is, is, a, is, is, is more fun. Um, I find it more creative. Yeah, I was wondering, because I know a lot, I mean, I have a pretty good idea what they were, but I know a lot of people always wonder, because they see these different things. You know, when you watch an end of a movie nowadays, it's it's like a mile-long credit list, and people don't know exactly who does what job, and they just, it kind of right. blurs together for them. A lot of times my name is left off of the credits because the kind of work that I do is a little different. Smaller movies will show, um, I did a movie for Creepy Crawl Productions years ago um, where I did vines and it, it appears like the credits are rolling, but then my artwork is there with it. And, uh, did a picture of um, a beautiful horror actress, Mel Heflin, and she was in the movie Succubus that they did. It was a horror film and her piece appeared uh, in the credits and things. Um Stuff like that is great, but the larger the film, I usually just, I don't even make it to the credits. Like people are always saying, oh, I watched the credits. I couldn't see your name. And I said, yep, like it's supposed to be. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't list the guy who emptied the trash cans, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, bring me some ice. You don't list that guy and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's not a film function. It's a production function. So... It's only in the past couple of years that they even mentioned like their bank, like their bankers and like we shot in Georgia and all this other stuff with film commission logos and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very strange. Some of the stuff that they put in, but you know, after you get, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the little piece of pulp that gets stuck in the colander <laughs> after they pour the juice through, which is okay because you know you're, you're 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 contributing. You're part of it. You get paid. You're known for it. That's okay. Um, I don't need my name on the screen. I just need the work. So that's the way I look at it. I, I'm happy to have the work rather than the you know the name. You can you know. And then I mean, who even sits and reads every name? You know, daughter, like when I do. Voice my daughter does. She, she's, she's constantly, always, she, she, you know, because she, she has a degree in theater production. So she likes to see. Oh, everybody. there you go. She likes, yeah. because of that, she likes to see everybody that's involved with it. And she says they deserve to have their <laughs> names seen. Right. Well, you know what? That's the thing, though, because when you're, when you're going to school for something, when you're learning something, um, I went to college and I took theater as a class for, for two semesters. I found it the most boring 
most annoying thing ever because I already was, I've already done something like 15, 20 years before, you know, uh, uh, these classes. And um, I felt like I had to fight the teacher the whole way because everything he said to me was wrong. I felt like saying, guys, this is wrong. Come out in the parking lot and I'll tell you what they really do. You know, <laughs> it was bad. They, they would all fail at that point. But, um, it, you know, it's, it, it, today they are very like uh, – um, I don't want to say sophisticated because that's the wrong word, but they're very detailed. Everything is, is micro examined. Everything is under a microscope. Um, we didn't do that. You know, we didn't discuss film. We got up and acted. We didn't discuss, and I'm not taking anything away. <laughs> oh, sorry. Again, I'm under a fan. So it's killing me. <laughs> so pardon me. Um, I'm not taking anything away from anybody. The study of any art, I don't care what you do, welding, uh, uh, woodworking, art, acting, cooking, um, anything that you do, you should know about detailed and you should, it's important. Um, but, uh, we didn't, we didn't like microscope it. We didn't put it under a magnifying glass and, and, and detail it. So people today, they're like, you know, Every person deserves their credit. Let's see what the credits look like. I'm going to read it. Oh, I saw that guy from another movie. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Even end credit scenes like you see in Marvel um, was all a kind of a thing of the past. The, the, the credits were kind of like um, the classifieds in the newspaper. How many people looked at the classifieds unless they actually needed a job, yep. you know, or the real estate ads or something? So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that today the outlook is a little different and the, the, the work is a little different and the thought process is a little different than it used to be. Um, I, I, unless I do something like a, an acting part, I don't usually get credits. So I, I'm okay with that. Uh, I just did a, a movie where I did a, a voice and uh, my name was in the credits and I'm like, huh. So that's what it feels like. You know? <laughs> like <laughs> now, what am I going to say? Speaking of creative freedom, you have a comic book, Mac in Trouble. Yeah. And, and I love that. And you love it. Can you tell the audience a little bit about it so they have an idea what it's about? Because I've seen the artwork. I've seen the comics when you were at the convention. And it, it's, it's something it, I, f I find a type of comic you don't see as much anymore. It's an old, it's, it's to me, it's like a throwback to the olden days. Well, that's what it is. It, it is a throwback. Um, Mac and trouble are, uh, hope and Crosby in a road picture. Mac and trouble are like the Marx brothers. Um, Mac and trouble are based on two real life cats, uh, that I own. And it's kind of funny because, um, they basically saved my life. Uh, I was injured and I was in bed for a couple of, well, for a couple of years and I, I didn't do anything. My wife brings home these two cats, Mac and his, his sister from the litter and Mac didn't walk very well and they were in a cage and she's going to put them in your, in your office. Yeah. So you grab a, you know, like any animal, when you bring them home, you should always grab clothes from your hamper and put them where they sleep so that they endear themselves towards your scent. 
So Mac's not walking very well. I thought in the beginning maybe it was because, you know, he's walking over all these clothes. He's a kitten. But actually he had a problem walking, and that's a tale for another story, pardon the pun. So I actually got up, took an interest in Mac, and I started doing things like holding his back legs and letting him struggle a little bit to pull him away so his muscles would build up. I would hold his midsection and help him glide a little bit to learn how to walk. And then I started doing work. And um, I came when we brought trouble in. He was like Mac's friend. And the two of them, they like got nose to nose, like they were going to fight and then turned around and just walked away together, ate together, slept together. They were friends. Trouble recently passed away. Mm, but um, so sorry to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah, he was a big guy and he had a lot of life in him. He was the, he was a teddy bear clown. I know a lot of people could say that about their animals. Um, I was close to both of them. But the thing is, is that um, <clears throat> he'll live on like Mac will, like I will in these stories, like everybody does with theirs. Mac in Trouble are, is a story of two cartoon cats who get pulled into the real world. So you got these two four-foot cats. Mac is a grumbly cat, and Trouble is kind of like a, uh, a a funny, scaredy cat who does like silly things. Um, they both share the part of Hope and Crosby, like they took the best thing. Picture the Ninja Turtles or like Chippendales Rescue Rangers. It's not a kids comic; it's just a family comic. So it's not meant for kids. We're not talking about a scholastic version but we're talking about like family fun so it's kind of sci-fi they get pulled into the real life world and there's a combination of animals aliens humans they go on missions i won't give away the whole story because it's a long story um but um mac and trouble both have superpowers mac has pockets he's the only cat in the world that has a pocket so he's like, uh, Mac, we need blah, 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 whatever it is. And he goes, oh, I'll reach into my pocket. So he's like, he pulls stuff out of his pocket. Oh, a light bulb, a sneaker, a telephone, a bra. I don't have the key. I don't have the key. You know, that kind of thing. Trouble, on the other hand, every time he gets excited or scared, he teleports. So it's like he's there, then he's gone. And, um, and you see both of those things in, in the, the first comic. They actually have a, a graphic novel and trade paperback that's going to be coming out at the beginning of next year a little bit of the best of with a little bit of new stuff and then they're going to be doing some regular uh stuff um it's not the only comic that i have i've been doing comics and magazines for years um we just did a trading card set because i've been doing a lot of card sets i really love them uh but mac and trouble is going to be near and dear to my heart and if you go on um, YouTube, if you look up Mac and Trouble, and it's called Later That Day, there's a three-minute-long cartoon of Mac and Trouble, an animated cartoon. And right now, we're in production of uh, a feature-length film that we're doing with uh, my producer uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, the name of the company is Bombitos Productions. They have a, a Roku channel and they have uh, ties with Amazon. 
and uh, they have some some awesome uh, uh, animation and voice actors that work with them. And I do voices for some of their other cartoons as well. But uh, we're in the process of doing a film with them. And uh, I think Mac and Trouble are going to translate well to the screen. If you see the trailer, the trailer is very funny. Um, they they it, It's basically two cartoon cats. They know that they were cartoons being brought into the real world. And it, it, it has a, a kind of a classic charm to it. Uh, you could almost substitute the two of them for Lucy and Ethel or Hope and Crosby or Martin and Lewis, because that was what it was designed to. It was designed to emulate um, that old world retro type feeling. But the things that they say are topical and they're funny and they're current and uh, it's kitschy and it's meant to be, you know, entertaining. It's not like Warner Brothers dropping anvils on each other's head. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Um, I've gotten a lot of parents who said that they like it. I've gotten a lot of adults that say that they like it. One one lady is, uh, I think she's like 85, and her son is a vendor who sells like comics and items at, at shows. Every time I see him at the show, he's like, Dude, you got to give me the new uh, issue. You got to give me the new uh, card set. You got to give me the new whatever. I used to give away sheets. I would mass produce these sheets of their adventures, like new strip fashion, sign them and give them away. She's a huge fan. And um, uh, I have people contact me and, wow, I love the, the cats. When are they coming out again? When is the video? Blah, 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 blah. So, you know, this is a, a, a program, I mean, a property that I'm passionate about because it's fun. I'm hoping that it lasts way past me and somebody picks up the reins and takes it much farther. Um, but again, it's not the only thing that I have. I have other things. We have the patriotic character called the symbol, which was uh, a character I designed for Marvel. And it was supposed to be uh, uh, used for something that the sci-fi channel was doing and then they changed. So I wound up keeping the character and publishing my own books and stories based on it. And then I had my trading card sets. Um, the most recent one was the dinosaur set, which is about to go to print. Uh, that one went about 600% over on Indiegogo. And I was excited about that. And uh, for people that want to see this and follow you, where can they go to see the stuff that you have coming out? Um, I, you know, I had websites and I just, I had such a hard time keeping up with them that I tell people, if you go to, uh, my name.com, rustygilligan.com, it'll take you to my Facebook page. Or if you just go on Facebook and look me up, I'm pretty much the only one with my name. And there's always a cat in the logo because of Mac and trouble. I do that. So, um, Basically, I put all my stuff on Facebook. There are albums, pictures of shows going all the way back 10, 15 years with celebrities and, and whatever. My pictures with, you know, all kinds of wrestlers and television stars. All the work that I do, I put stuff up. Uh, I do, uh, you know, all positive stuff. And I tell people um, <clears throat> the page is public. So you don't have to be friends. Uh, I think that's kind of silly on Facebook anyway. 
if it's public, it's public. I mean, that, that, that's just it. Um, so, uh, you know, people can come up. I run contests all the time. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a contest on Monday where I'm going to be um, doing artwork. Um, and then sometime during the week, I'm going to be doing an auction with the money going to animal charity. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm doing an auction on the radio tomorrow with some artwork myself. Um, it'll be live for a half hour. Um, but, uh, well, I should say tomorrow, 829. I don't know when this will come out, but the, but it, tomorrow for me, at least anyway. And, um, yes, definitely. we have, the, the uh, listeners will be, it'll be probably a month from now. Okay. Well, let's put it this way in the future. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, it was great. Uh, whatever happened tomorrow, it was great. It was the best thing ever. Uh, we made millions of dollars. Uh, if only you could have been there. Uh, if, if only Professor Peabody could get his way back machine and you could go back in time. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I hope, hope that bring a couple of dollars in for their charity, uh, Heroes for a Cause, which I think is kind of nice. Usually I do a lot of animal stuff, but anytime somebody asks me for charity, um, I would say probably nine times out of ten I say yes. Uh, I do artwork for American Heart Association. Uh, comic book covers for cancer, which is another one, uh, all kinds of animal charities. Um, anytime somebody asks, I, I like to, you know, get involved. When I do the work for a comic or for a trading card or whatever, even prints, all that artwork just sits. Once I scan it, it just sits in an envelope and doesn't go anywhere. I don't, don't like to collect. I don't like to keep. If I had a fire, boy, this whole house would go up like like a tinderbox, it would be huge. So I, I just want to get rid of stuff. I don't need it. I'd rather the fans have it. Um, funny story. Years ago, Marvel would do their comics and they would have all of their artwork sitting inside of like a vault or a warehouse room. Well, <clears throat> new editors would come in and people would just grab giant stacks of comic book pages and throw them in a dumpster. And that would be it. Nobody kept them. So comic book stores and fans would like raid the dumpsters, grab all the artwork. Oh my God, I got a Jack Kirby page. Oh my God, I got a Spider-Man page. Someone ripped this in half, but I got it anyway. And on and on and on and on. Um, today, it's worth, you know, all that stuff is, you know, the fodder for rewards on your crowdfunding and, <laughs> Part of me, and you know, go on uh, eBay and sell it and everything. So what I usually do is just donate it. I've got such a giant envelope of work just from this year alone, probably fifty or sixty sheets of things, and they're just sitting. So I'm going to start getting rid of them by the end of the year. I'm hoping the envelope will be empty by the end of the year, and um, next year I can start a new pile of junk. <laughs> so. <laughs> But uh, anyway, but tomorrow I'll be doing an auction for a piece. I don't know which one yet. I'll try and pick something out nice. Um, but uh, I do a lot of charity stuff. All Like I said, if you go to Facebook or go to myname.com, you'll find me. Uh, it's too hard to keep up a website, mm -hmm. at least for me anyway. And I can't afford to have somebody do it for me. No time. 
uh, and a waste of money. Everything I need to do is on Facebook. Uh, people can get me on Twitter or Instagram under Mac and Trouble. Uh, just all you got to do is just put it in. Again, cat pictures, you'll find me right away. And Rusty, I want to thank you for taking time with me to let me interview you about your, I mean, the stuff you've done so far and who knows what you got coming in the future. I mean, you know, it's just, cause you I and appreciate I, it. you and I are still in our prime. I look at it and, um, you know, so we got, we got a lot of good years ahead of us that we're going to be able to come out with some interesting creative content. You might be, you might be in your prime. I'm that cut of meat. That's like USDA maybe labels F plus. So you might be in your prime. I'm falling apart. I'm held together with like chicken wire and gum at this point. But, um, I appreciate it. You should blow a loud air horn because all the audience I board with my yakking is probably waiting to wake up. This is like, this is, this is like the podcast to fall to sleep to. That's what you should say. (laughs) Uh, Well, if they got this far, they obviously made it awake or, or, or they woke up at this point. Um, but listen, um, but listeners, um, never our next episode will either be a movie decided by the roll of a die or another interview and hope everybody stays safe and has fun out there. And I um, hope you guys listen to the next time. <laughs>